Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where in the next two programmes I wander around the streets of Yamate with my guide Lindsay Varty. Born and bred in Hong Kong, Lindsay is a professional rugby player and recently wrote the book Sunset Survivors, a series of interviews with older tradespeople in Yamate and other districts whose artisan skills are fast disappearing. The superb photographs that go with her book Sunset Survivors are by photographer Gary Jones. Sunset Survivors is published by Hong Kong's Blacksmith Books. In this week's programme, Lindsay Varty tells me about a pawn shop and how fishing communities used to pawn off their own children, her love of street food, playing New Zealand at rugby, and two brothers who are keeping their father's copperware business going. Lindsay also provides tours of Yamate. I grew up in Hong Kong. Interestingly, I was born in London, but I came back to Hong Kong with my family after 20 days. So I've been here since I was 20 days old. My parents both grew up here as well. My dad's British, my mum's Macanese, but four generations Hong Kong. My dad came to Hong Kong when he was about five, six years old. So to me, I'm very much from Hong Kong, I would say. What appeals to you about Yamade? I like this area because I think that it's a really nice sort of amalgamation of old and new Hong Kong. I think you've got Yes, the sort of newer aspects like some of the new buildings and businesses, but then you've also got real sort of the gritty side of Hong Kong and you've got workers, you've got triads and prostitutes and all sorts of things mixed together so you can really get a good representation of uh, old and new Hong Kong. Now, you've managed in Sunset Survivors to capture some of the old industries that are or old trades that are, you know, probably going to disappear over the next few years. Yeah, that's right. So ever since I was little, I really liked the sort of older shops and the older businesses that I saw around Hong Kong. And as I grew up, I noticed more and more of them disappearing. So about five years ago, I decided that I wanted to document them whilst they were still here and sort of get the stories from the people that work in those industries and find out how they've managed to survive. You know, I tried to put a bit of a positive spit on it and say that despite all the changes, rising rents, changing cultural values, all this kind of thing, these are the people that have persisted and kept their family businesses alive. Now, you speak Cantonese, but when you were actually looking at these specific trades, did you have to learn some new vocab? Yeah, so I speak Cantonese okay. It's not perfect, for sure. And when I started to do the interviews and the research on these uh, industries, I decided to take up lessons because there was a lot of vocabulary that I didn't know. You know, when I went to go interview somebody that handmade bird cages, I didn't even know how to say bird cage. When I went to this local pawn shop here, I didn't even know how to say the word for pawn shop. So I started to get lessons and I just really, really enjoyed it. And I actually still continue to do a lesson once a week now because I always think it's important to improve. Now your Sunset Survivors, which was a collaboration between you and photographer Gary Jones. Yes, he was the photographer and the designer for the book, but he's got some incredible photos and I think the photos are really what brings the, the book to life. And I was the one that did the research and the interviews and sort of editorial side of it. Okay, so the first stop on the walking tour is this pawn shop, the traditional pawn shop. You actually can see them a lot around Hong Kong and they're very recognizable by these big signs, which people say is like the bat shape. The reason why I decided to interview this particular pawn shop is actually because the man that runs it, it's a family business run by a guy called Mr. Lai, and he is actually the father of one of my rugby teammates. So that's how I was introduced to him. So one of my rugby teammates actually grew up in this shop itself because from spending so much time working here with the business, he decided that it would be much easier to raise his kids in the back of the shop. So they grew up on a sort of fold-out mattress in the back. They do have a home as well, of course, but it was just so much easier to have them here. And uh, it was a way to sort of 
have a deeper connection and um, meet the sort of characters that run these kind of businesses and find out a little bit more. So I find it fascinating because the structure of a traditional pawn shop is such that it's all about face and it's all Hong Kong is a lot about face and saving face. So the doors that you see are always the same. You'll have this screen door at the front which hides and protects the sort of identity of the people that are going in to pawn their goods. Nowadays, when you think of pawning your goods, you think of your watches, your sort of more expensive items, gold, jewelry, things like this. But in the past, more commonly, and still today now, you can actually pawn just about anything you can find in your home. So in the summer months, people would pawn off everything from blankets to pillows to extra things that they didn't need in their flat to get some more space, but also just any many money that they could get from whatever they could pawn off would be done. Yamate was an old fishing area, still is, but it used to be a lot closer to here than it is now. And you had the Hong Kong boat people that used to sort of come up on the shores here. The boat people would often come to shore here and Mr. Lai remembers a time when these boat people would come, bring their wares, but also bring their children to the pawn shops. And because there was a general belief that children of boat people would never grow up to amount to anything, would never become anything and uh, be successful in their lives. So what they would do was they would pawn their own children off to the pawn shop and then buy them back shortly afterwards, just for a small amount, to sort of symbolically represent this breaking the curse of the boat people. So the children were no longer children of boat people, they were children of the pawn shop. And that would uh, help them later on in life to become whatever they wanted to be. But what if they couldn't pay back? Well, it was just a very short <laughs> transaction. I don't think they left their children with a pawn shop too long. I hope not. But there's all sorts of fun things. So as I said, you know, the screen doors hide the identity. You've also got the very high counter inside. So the high countertop is to represent two things. Obviously, one thing is to safety because a lot of the types of people that you might get going to a pawn shop would often be bad people, you could say. Um, so the, the high surface um, counter and the bars would protect the pawn shop worker. But also, it's very high so that the person coming to pawn their goods has to reach up and it sort of almost looks like they're begging for the pawn shop owner to take their wares and then the pawn shop um, owner will look down upon them. So it's this element of hierarchy that is established through just having a very high countertop and that is traditional layout of a pawn shop and it's sort of like that in every pawn shop you find in Hong Kong. So, so Mr. Lai will be happy to talk to us today. You can talk to us, yeah, in Chinese, we'll work it out. <laughs> Interesting that the police are here as well. He says that every morning the police give him a list of stolen goods in the area because Obviously, the types of things that you might get, people trying to pawn off in your shop, are iPhones, iPads, laptops. And if somebody brings you five iPads in a day, you do wonder where they're getting them from. And so every iPhone, etc., has a serial number on it. So the serial numbers of the reported stolen goods are given to all the pawn shops in the area every morning. Um, but nowadays, you have to give your ID card when you want to pawn something off. So that should act as a bit more of a deterrent to uh, people to pawn stolen goods. Well, this will be my first time in a pawn shop. Okay. Hello,我是大家的朋友。哦,個BB嗰啲啊。哦,以前呢,嗱,以前真係開平日麻地地方旁嗰啲呢,依個冇,即係冇曬嗰啲平嗰啲人㗎啦。以前呢,就真係大個
tend to run a nice little illegal mahjong game all the time. So. <laughs> I think alleyways are some of the best places to look for Hong Kong culture in Hong Kong. You find all sorts of things down there. I think everywhere you walk around Yamade, there's all the, the dried seafood, the dried all sorts of things here. So I think that people who are new to Hong Kong or don't know much about Hong Kong culture, it's a really great taster of old Hong Kong. Now you have spent your life here, but you actually went to university in England. I did, yes. So I grew up in Hong Kong and I went to England for university. I went to the University of Nottingham. And uh, can I ask about your Hong Kong background? Sure. Yeah. My father is British, but he grew up in Hong Kong. He came to Hong Kong on a boat in 1961 when he was about five or six, six years old, I think. And my mum is four or five generations Hong Kong. She's originally Macanese, but she also grew up here. Mum went to Mary Knoll first and then went to KG5 for the last few years. And my dad was at KG5 throughout school. And so my brother and I also went to KG5 as well. So, proper Hong Kong kids. Yes. <laughs> yes. So when you went to university, you have some British heritage, but that would have been a new country to you in a lot of ways. So how did your mum send you any sort of Hong Kong comfort? She used to help me. She packed a couple of dried mushrooms and things, which was always funny, because I remember once at university I had some sort of Chinese dried mushrooms rehydrating in a jar in the kitchen. <laughs> My housemates didn't really know what to make of it, and they came running upstairs like, what the hell is in the jar in the kitchen? But that was always something funny. I remember looking for ages to find chicken wings, which are my absolute favorite kind of snack. And in England, you can't really buy chicken wings from, or I couldn't in that time in the supermarket. But eventually I found a local Chinese emporium, which was a godsend that I could finally get my chicken wing fix. Um, oh, I did all sorts of things wrong when I first went to university. I think because I look British, people just assumed I was uh, from England. But I would do silly things like get the currency wrong or panic when I got told it was a certain prize and I had to go through all the coins really nervously in my hand to try to get the currency or I remember one time on a bus I shouted Bassy Jam and I thought it was my stop and then I realized I was in England and you don't need to do that and there's a bell um, <laughs> but all sorts of silly things when I first arrived but it was I don't think I ever expected to have a culture shock in England but I think I did a bit so it kind of made me realize how Hong Kong I really am Absolutely. So we're wandering, <laughs> I'm wandering around uh, Yamade with Lindsay Vardy, and Lindsay has written Sunset Survivors, a beautiful book talking to various older, largely, tradespeople around the Yamade district. So tell me about some of the trades that are covered. We've just been to the pawn shop. So there's 30 different industries in the book that I covered, but on this little walking tour that we do today, there's the pawn shop, the traditional pawn shop there. Then we'll walk past several Dai Pai Dong and things like that, so you get to try some of the local Hong Kong food. Then we go to visit the uh, the cover boys on the book, which are the um, Binky Copperware shop. So they hand hammer copperware pots for congee pots, but also giant gongs. They made the gong for the Shasin race course, which signifies the start of every racing, the horse racing calendar. And then we go past the Yamate fruit market and the theater, and we'll go down and we'll visit um, uh, an elderly lady that makes traditional Chinese scales. And then we'll visit the letter writer down the end as well. That's amazing. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the art of letter writing, I mean, it's gone for all of us, but this was based on people who were unable to write. Yeah, we'll get to meet him later. Actually, the man that we will meet is Mr. Leung, who came to Hong Kong uh, in the 1950s, I believe, and he is originally Vietnamese, but he came to Hong Kong and was working as a bartender before people realized that he spoke English, Chinese, as in Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, and French, 
and so he was sort of far overqualified to be a bartender and they thought that he could be this very prestigious job as a letter writer right which was in those days seen as you know a job for the highly educated and people that could read and write and help those that were illiterate but obviously now you've got this sort of reversal where everybody in Hong Kong can read and write and he's working in this quite redundant job um, which was once so prestigious but now he just helps people deal with their tax forms and things like that because they're quite confusing and you know applications for welfare things like this but he very rarely does any letters anymore but he still owns a 45 year old typewriter and has never used a computer a day in his life excellent i like this man yeah i like him too he's kind of annoyed with me coming to visit him all the time <laughs> That's also an interesting thing, I mean, which I'll know from, uh, you know, a little bit from radio interviews. You are, in some ways, being invasive. I mean, I know that uh, you would go to the tradespeople and you would, like when you went to see the knife sharpener, you took along ten knives to be sharpened and you tended to buy goods from the shops so that it wasn't just coming in and taking up their time. Absolutely. So for every um, industry in the book... I visited their shop and I had to sort of persuade them to let me talk to them, to let me write about them. So I always tried their service or bought something small from their shop. And there were those um, businesses that didn't want to be in the book, that didn't want to be interviewed. So I just left them be because a lot of these people are, you know, in their 70s and 80s. They just don't want to be disturbed. They're not bothered about being famous or anything like that. But those that are in the book, they were very happy once I'd, you know, got my hair cut in a local Shanghainese barber or had my face threaded in her tiny little store in Sham Shui Po. The copperware shop, you know, I bought some little ornaments. And when I bring people on walking tours to visit some of these people, I don't force people to buy anything, but often they do. And I think that makes the shopkeepers very happy. And as we just visited Mr. Lai in the pawn shop, He's my friend's dad, so he's always super friendly and super happy to see me and always very happy to talk to people about his industry and his traditional trade. This is uh, the Dai Pai Dong that I take people to on the walking tour, uh, just because it's sort of on the way. And uh, it depends how adventurous people are feeling. So you can either start with the Kai Dan Jai, which is like the egg waffles here, which most people love. And then there's the more adventurous sort of area around there with the stinky tofu and the chicken feet and all sorts of things like that. So. Some people are really up for it. Some people do not want to try it. <laughs> so we're in on the corner of Pitt Street, and what's the street running up here? Uh, this, that's Pitt Street, and this one is uh, Reclamation Street. So this is, would have been the original harbour front. Yeah, this is the harbour front. Okay, yeah, so, this, so is this is where the waterfront right here. And um, so many of the shops that you'll see, you know, the Tin Hao Temple down the road on down the end there, used to be on the waterfront, looking out over the sea. And now you've got about three kilometres worth of reclaimed land. So quite sad but allowing for many more shops I guess. What I find amazing about the egg waffles is that uh, when I first came here in 93 they were ten dollars for a packet and uh, now they're only about 15 so that's not much inflation is it? No, exactly they don't change too much. Um, things like my, when I was young my mum used to take me to the wet market and we'd go to Sham Shui Po to get congee. My dad would take me to Tong Toy Street to see the fish. They wanted me to have a bit more of a real Hong Kong experience. They didn't necessarily want me to just grow up in a sort of Western, a solely Western culture, obviously I have more Western upbringing, but they wanted me to experience the real Hong Kong as well. So we tried lots of these different things. We, um, as I said, ate congee and the yao jaguai as well, the, the fried breadsticks that go in it. And today I still have that and I've introduced my totally guaylo boyfriend <laughs> to congee and he loves it too. But the price hasn't changed too much either. It depends where you go. But in those days, maybe $10 for a bowl of congee. And now 
you can still get it for maybe $30. I mean, there are places that sell it for like $100, but depends where you go. But if you go to a sort of outdoor eatery and get congee, it can still be about 20 bucks with the pay down and with everything you want in it. And I really enjoy that. And I think that's, that's real Hong Kong for you. They're all the best snacks. You know, Chas Yu Fan will always be a hit with the tourists as well. It's a crowd pleaser. Like, like Gai Dan Zai, I really like it. And that pleases most people. You got Dan Tats, you got all sorts of things like that. So what are these? Uh, these are octopus balls. Now, I mean, I love also Hong Kong baked goods. We're just passing a bakery there, but I'm, I'm hearing also just how many trans fats are in them. Yeah, they're pretty horrific for you, but they do taste quite nice, so it depends what, what you value. Are you a mooncake fan? I am a mooncake fan, although I probably eat just a quarter or a half a mooncake, but yeah, don't tell my coach. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're hugely calorific, aren't they? Yeah, I heard something that was like a quarter of a mooncake is enough cholesterol for a week, something like that. Now, you're a rugby player. Yeah, that's right. So I started playing rugby when I was uh, about 12 years old. And I've played ever since. I played for USRC Tigers, but I also played for the Hong Kong Women's Sevens team, which has been a huge part of my life and, and really my identity just to, to be a rugby player. I really enjoy it. Girls rugby in Hong Kong is so much fun and very lucky to be in the Hong Kong team as we get to travel all around the world and go to different tournaments. And yeah, it's definitely been an amazing experience for, for me. So, I mean, tell me about some of these tournaments. We've been everywhere. We've been to amazing places that I never would have been otherwise. Like my first tour when I was 17 years old with the Hong Kong team was to Uzbekistan, somewhere I never would have thought I would get to go or experience. But that was amazing. We've been to Kazakhstan. We've been all over Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, China, Singapore. But we've also been to Australia, New Zealand. Two years ago, we went to the Hong Kong Women's World Cup as well in Ireland, which was a 15s tournament, actually. And we got absolutely annihilated. But what an experience to go to a World Cup like that and, and play amongst the, the best of the best. We actually got to play New Zealand, which was amazing. We lost 121-0, but, you know, it was absolutely fantastic. And But I would have thought it, it, sometimes the physique oh, yeah. is different, too. Does that make a difference in rugby? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly when we're sevens, you can be quite small, and that's what Hong Kong's very good at. You know, we can, we're fast, we're nimble, but when we're playing 15s, a lot of it is about the, the physicality of the game and playing against New Zealand where the average weight, I think, was about 95 kilos and our average weight was 60 kilos. You can just imagine the, the size difference um, in the scrum, for example, which was uh, hilarious. But what an absolute honor to play against the, the best team in the world. For us, that was an incredible experience, yeah. So when you're in the scrum, how do you get fired up? Um, well, I personally am not in the scrum, but I am a scrum half, so I see what goes on in the scrum, yeah. And they do fire each other up, yeah. They do tell each other to, to really go for it, to, to smash the opposition. I think it was more, when we played against New Zealand, for example, that was more a case of just backing each other and uh, telling each other we got to go for it. You know, no matter what happens, no matter if we're a quarter of the size of the other team, we gotta, we got to do this. But, no, yeah, women's rugby is amazing. You all encourage each other, and that's, that's the reason why I like it. And also in your team, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you've got a whole variety of people who are Hong Kongers, but, uh, well, often don't look the same. Yeah, exactly. I mean, our team, we have Europeans, you know, Guaymois, we have uh, Chinese, we have black, white, Asian, everything. And I think that the nice thing is when you pull on the same jersey, you know that everybody here is, is a Hong Konger and everybody's representing Hong Kong. doesn't matter what you look like. You know, that's what you're there for. And you are a Hong Konger in that moment that you go onto the field to represent the city. And so what role do you have on the pitch? Well, I'm a scrum half, so people might say I'm bossy. 
but yeah, it's just to sort of command the team and tell people where to go and what to do. Scrum Hat, you might argue, is hiding from all the tackles as well because everybody else does the dirty work and we just get to sort of pass the ball around. But I also play centre or other positions too. But I, I just love rugby. I don't really mind where I play on the pitch. I just want to be involved. And did you play at, I mean, you said that you went to KG5. I mean, did you start rugby at school or...? I actually started to play for what was then called Kaitak Tigers, which is up at Kings Park. And I just played because I used to have to go every Sunday to watch my brother and I got bored of watching. So then I decided that I'm going to give it a go. And I just really, really enjoyed it. At that time, KG5 didn't have a rugby team. And actually, there wasn't even a team for my age group at Kaitak either. But myself and a few of the other sisters of rugby players, we put together a team and just started from there. And now you've got about two or 3,000 girls playing rugby every Sunday morning across Hong Kong. So... It's fantastic to see the growth of women's rugby in Hong Kong. I'm wandering around Yamate. We're just going along uh, Reclamation Street. I'm with Lindsay Vardy, who wrote Sunset Survivors. Lindsay, you also give tours of Yamate. Yeah, that's right. So um, just starting to do them a little bit more often because I have a little bit more time now, but I take smaller groups of people all around Yamate to visit some of the old industries that are featured in the book. So this one we're coming up to now is the Binky Copperware store and these are two brothers in their late 70s, early 80s, I'm not quite sure, but they um, hand hammer copperware pots, gongs, urns, all sorts of things um, that you'll see around Hong Kong and they've been doing it for, or their family's been doing it for generations. Here they are. So Lok Shu Choi and Lok Kung Choi and they're brothers and their father, this is their father's shop. This is the Binky Copperware. So this is just off Reclamation. And what street are we on now? This is Hamilton Street. So it's officially number one Hamilton Street, but there's like two number one Hamilton Streets on this street. So you just got to look for all the Copperware pots outside the shop. Yeah, now they're huge. Mm, they are. And these, these are used by like herbal tea shops. Hello. So these two are the brothers and this is their friend. So they're all sitting on, all sitting on tree trunks. Yeah, old tree trunks. And you can see the many different hammers and tools that they have here. And that's... It's actually quite a bittersweet tale, so it's great that they have so many tools, but the reason why they do is because there used to be about 30 shops similar to this in this area, and as they all shut down because they were running out of business, they donated all of their tools to each other. So this is the last shop that remains in Yamate that really does everything, as you can see here, and they've got about 400 hammers now, and they only need about five, five, six. So um, boxes and boxes of old tools from all the other shops that have closed down. So if I'm just looking up at the shelves here, we've got urns, we've got even a copper fan up there. Yeah, all sorts of things. They can make pretty much anything you like, but before the age of stainless steel, every single pot that you used in a kitchen in Hong Kong was, it tended to be copper pots, and that's how you made conchi, that's how you made all sorts of things. Um, but now, as you can see, Luk Shu Choi here is making, putting together a herbal tea urn for herbal tea shops that um, still use these kind of pots today. So you might see these for tea, you might see these for the turtle shell jelly that you see in some shops as well. So that's the majority of their business now. So, I mean, some of these urns, the smaller ones that I'm seeing on the shelf here will probably be for funerals? Yes, for funerals, for uh, temples. You see the gongs up here, all sorts of things. They actually made the giant copper gong for the Shatin race yes, course. That's amazing. Yeah. So they say they're very, very happy when they see the, the gong on TV every year because they're very proud that they yeah. made that one. And also just, I mean, I don't know how one hammers uh, uh, copper, but actually for a gong, you've got to really get the right resonance, I'm sure, you know, to make it sound right. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I don't know. I've never hammered a, a copper gong before in my life, but you can watch them do it. So these are small ones, so you could have them when the dinner's ready. 
Yeah, that would be a great idea, actually. <laughs> Um, the shop has been here for about 90 years. It was their father's business and his father's before that. So um, it's a really sort of famous shop in this area. And they get asked to make all sorts of things. I've actually just seen that they've got some designs up here for Aladdin's The Genie Lamp. <laughs> so they can make all sorts of things. But yeah, they tend to make pots and urns and things like that. And they're always really happy to see me, which is really nice. And one of the brothers has just got another book off me which is very cute because he said that his brother wouldn't lend him his um, so I, I gave a book back to all of the people that I interviewed um, but he's very happy very happy to ent entertain uh, walking tour guests whenever we come by oh lovely yeah their father's shop so it was established in the 1940s actually and they work all day on all of the pots they could normally if they make one pot from start to finish until it's completely ready to be sold, it takes an entire day. So that means that they are a little bit more expensive. So some of the congee pots, for example, can be up to $700. But it's, you know, the fact that they're handmade and they spend so, so long to make them that it really does make them worthwhile. And they have so many nice things. You see all the, the cups and, and kettles and pots and things they have here. You you might actually see them in some like trendy new restaurants today which is quite interesting but the fact that these are handmade it, it does make them incredibly valuable so uh, the shop across the road is a paper effigy shop so the Chinese belief is that when somebody dies you can make these paper effigies and you burn them as sort of gifts for people in the afterlife so things that can be given to them in the afterlife that they can have and what's interesting is it started out being things like a pair of shoes or a mansion or something like that but nowadays the majority of requests that come in to these people for these handcrafted beautifully made paper effigies are things like iPhones, iPads, uh, Gucci handbags, uh, Burberry suits you know these are the kind of requests they're getting, and so many iPhone requests, in fact, that they are now no longer handcrafted. They're just mass-produced in factories in China, these paper recreations of an iPhone and, and, and a laptop, because apparently these are the kind of things that you need in the afterlife now. And not just the phone, but also the charger itself. There's a little paper charger, but the man that I interviewed about the paper effigies, or Zizat, as it's called, he makes all manner of things, including like life-size massage chairs, um, he's made an electric guitar for a rock star from the band Beyond that unfortunately fell off stage and died. He's also made like a whole Wing Chun wooden statue thing, obviously in paper. And it's all made... Wing Chun? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, martial arts, Wing Chun, you know the one. And it's all very, very delicately made with hand sort of maneuvering bamboo strips and then putting this joss paper and this paper on top of it, like a paper mache version. And then the painting and the, the, the detail that goes into it sometimes you see them and it's just incredibly lifelike he made a nintendo game boy sort of playstation set thing that i saw when i was there and it's being sold at you know two thousand dollars but people have very specific requests but as i said yeah the requests are becoming more and more materialistic and interestingly when i spoke to uh mr aoyoung who i interviewed about the paper effigy shop he was telling me how materialistic things have gotten and then at the end i asked him what he might want in the afterlife when he passes on and he told me that he would like a hi-fi system and a couple of full-size, seven-foot-long luxury cars. So, wow. <laughs>
Porsche, a Mercedes, a Ferrari. He was like, yeah, any of those will do. Just something for the afterlife. Well, you got to get around. Yeah, exactly. you got to get around in style as well. <laughs> My thanks to Lindsay Varty, professional rugby player and author of Sunset Survivors. Lindsay also provides guided tours of Yamate, and you can find out more at her website, www.sunsetsurvivors.com so that's www.sunsetsurvivors.com Next week, Lindsay continues giving me a tour of the old trades of the district. So join Lindsay and me next week as we continue our tour of Yamate. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>